Philadelphia Inquirer, and a member of the board of the National Book Critics Circle, Mr. Romano. Thank you, Harvey. Can you hear okay? Please working? Okay. Well, what we're going to do tonight is discover that I think we can tell from, from dinner that there aren't as many common elements as we might think among younger fiction writers in New York, but we're going to try and tease out uh, common elements anyway, even if it's just that they all drink water during this panel. Um, Amy Hempel has a character in one of her stories who works for a travel agency. And if I remember right, the motto of the travel agency is we never willingly, or no, we never knowingly ruin your vacation. Uh, we, we are not going to try and knowingly ruin your evening here tonight, but what we've tried to do in, in kind of pre-cooking questions is to get away a little bit from questions like, uh, how old are you? Um, and is it true that that character is based on so-and-so? And talk maybe half of the time about literary issues, so to speak, whether there are uh, common styles, common themes, common objections um, that relate to these writers, and also a little bit about publishing. Now, the reaction I got at dinner was that some of these publishing questions are maybe best left to the audience, so I now see my role as bringing them up if you don't. Uh, but I'm going to toss out some of those questions about literary politicking, if such, such a thing exists, about um, trends, powers, et cetera, in the publishing world that affect fiction, but we don't want to get entirely wrapped up with that. Uh, I will naturally now introduce everyone on the panel. I, I was thinking whether somehow it would be in the spirit of this session just to introduce them by first names. Um, I will, I suppose, go the longer route and introduce first Amy Hempel on my far left. David, Le David Levitt on my immediate left, Mona Simpson on my immediate right, and Deborah Eisenberg on my far right, but you don't want to be considered far right. No. <laughs> Not okay. at all. Fine. Um, I, I'm going to assume that it would be more fun to sort of leap right in rather than to give uh, sort of potted capsules, the in short section of the New York Times on each of uh, our author's books. So I'm going to toss out first a question that uh, we sort of circulated to people a day or two ago, and not everyone is going to respond to each question, but um, we'll take it question by question. Uh, here it was, and of course they're free to reject all clauses. Um, is there a school of New York City fiction writers whose work is marked by several characteristics? Minimalist style, tendency to emphasize everyday detail, rather than ideas or moral conflicts, a nihilistic vision of the world and avoidance of complicated plot. Now that's a kind of complicated question, but I have a feeling a lot of people in the audience have a sense at least of a perception uh, that exists. Maybe it's just in the critical community, maybe it's partly among writers too, uh, of things that you find in fiction today. Um, so I'm gonna ask David first if he has anything to say to this uh, sort of hanging perception? Okay. Um, I think I would say no, yes, no, and no. Oh, <laughs> not fair. Aaron, we can all go home. Um, no, I, 
I think this question is a little elusive. Um, for for a long time, uh, everyone knows has heard the the phrase the New Yorker's story. You know, people say, "Oh, that's a real New Yorker's story," and. For a long time, I always took that phrase for granted. But then it occurred to me, as I read a lot of fiction in the New Yorker, I couldn't—I don't think I've ever read a New Yorker story. It's a sort of—it's a sort of uh, negative ideal that doesn't really exist. And in the same way, when when Carlin said that most of you have a sort of intuitive sense of there being this school of young New York fiction writers, and I suppose I have that intuitive sense. I would perceive that sense as being sort of akin to one sense of there being such a thing as a New Yorker story. That if you actually take all the writers who tend to be fit under this rubric and look at them individually, you're going to find that the differences are a lot more noticeable than the similarities. You're going to find you have a, a lot of writers who are very diverse and who, again, of those four characteristics which you named, the only one that I would say has anything close to a kind of universal uh, and close to a commonality among these writers is, is, is an attention to everyday detail. Um, and yet that seems to me to go back to Jane Austen. That doesn't seem to me to be anything particularly new or else or anything particularly New Yorkish. Mona? Well, I can only add that I have really nothing to say about this because I don't, uh, I don't read contemporary fiction, uh, except very, very rarely. Sorry, it's not okay. Uh, and so, and I have no uh, intuitive sense, as David says, what our contemporaries might be doing, because I've really stayed very far away from uh, reading fiction and from reading criticism. So I'm out. <laughs> She's not getting paid either. <laughs> All I can say is that <clears throat> I think that, I don't know about this New York school, I think it's just a matter, uh, it's just a fact that there are a number of writers <coughs> who are in New York who seem to know each other, do know each other, um, and so it gets called that, but as for all this, these same kinds of things in their work, I, I don't think that's so. Let me bring the question to, to a more specific case, just see if that pr provokes anything. Uh, it seems to me that there are a lot of stories these days in which characters only have first names. Um, I think in the first, for instance, story in, in your collection, Deborah, the characters only have first names. I'm just curious, uh, wh when a writer is, is you know, writing a story and deciding there are only going to be first names, is, is there a rationale? Well. Uh, in my case, not only are there often only first names, there are often characters who are nameless, uh, and often the narrators of the story uh, have been nameless. And I would say that, no, I've never consciously thought, well, this character should have a name, this character should not have a name. Uh, but uh, I've never had to think about it really very long. It seems fairly clear what is called I'm, I'm not sure whether I'm even addressing the question, let alone answering it, but that's... I guess, you know, I, since I'm supposed to re represent the, the critical community a little, little bit here, I think of it in journalistic terms. I mean, we're always forced to put in middle names, maybe two middle names, uh, if you have a, as we have some 
recent story is a Mideastern sheik who has four middle names. Uh, there's, there's a pressure to put in all four middle names. And I guess the journalistic assumption behind it is that you're somehow thickening the world. You're, um, you're providing more of that kind of detail that uh, David was suggesting maybe is, is one of the characteristics and one with a long lineage. So when you have people who are perhaps citing this as a characteristic of writing today, a, a minimalist, simple approach, and you have a lot of stories without last names and perhaps without a lot of associated detail, it would seem to me as a writer that that, that is a decision that has to be made, and that unless it's completely accidental or fortuitous, um, there must be some, some motivation. Well, I, I can just say, can you hear? Am I, yeah, okay. Um, I had a, a reviewer complain about my stories that, uh, uh, who were these people? We didn't know where they were born or where they went to school. And I thought, hey, you know, I made them up, you know? <laughs> what do you mean, where did they go to school? <laughs> you know? So, what do you mean, what's their last name? Yeah. Um, I made them up only this much. Well, I, <laughs> I think that um, there's, we're getting caught on the wrong uh, example here. Uh, my, just from my sense of reading, um, it seems to me that whether characters have last names is really a function of the length of the story, the, uh, the sort of story it is, if it's a story in which, it's in which, which takes place in a world where last names are used, say if it takes place in the public world or in the work world as opposed to the world of the family, where in a sense last names are sort of taken for granted. And also, it's a, fa a factor of whether it's first person or, or third person. Um, I don't think there's, that there's much ideological about you know, whether or not you give a character's last name. It always seems to me to just be sort of a function of the sort of natural uh, spinning out of the story. What, what you mentioned about these sort of associative, did you say associative lack of detail? Is it good? That will go. That's See, fine. I think I would characterize I would say more, it's not an associative lack of detail, but it's a choice of, of detail that is a little bit unusual. Um, it's a very, if you read a writer who I think truly does fit this sort of rubric, even though she doesn't live in New York, Mary Robeson, um, there are incredible, all of those stories are is detail and dialogue. There's nothing else. There's incredible, incredible detail. Every detail is very carefully selected, and every detail is extremely odd. And um, maybe they're not the sort of details you expect. And maybe that's why her stories are so surprising. And, and they tell in a very peculiar way. Because the, the method by which she conveys information about her characters isn't through exposition, isn't through naming. It's through odd details. And, and that, it strikes me, is not only irrelevant, but a very interesting way of writing. However, it's a way of writing uh, which, which uh, it seems to me has been kind of misread and undeservedly uh, maligned. I think it's very hard to speak in general um, about one particular stylistic tick like that. I mean, I, I actually do happen to use last names, but, um, or have thus far. Um, I was thinking the way as you were saying that of, of Chekhov's rather consistent tendency to say in the town of N um, there lived etc cetera, etc cetera. and I, I, I think it would be very wrong to accuse him of, of not thickening the world or, or not 
or leaving out a detail or being insufficient in imagination, I think if one respects her work, one can only assume that the, the intention was that this could be happening in any provincial town of that time or place and size. And I think in Raymond Carver's stories, when he, when he only names he and she, there's, there's an intentionality about it. I think to assume that it's um, a trend of a generation is, I think it's, it's actually reductive to the specific writer's uh, style. I was saying at dinner that I thought well, one of the purposes of a panel like this or one of the effects might be that it sort of unpacks whatever the perceptions are that, that, that are hovering there um, so that if you have something that's supposed to bring together a bunch of people on a panel and they all leave separately, they know it's been a good panel. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're also, those of you who follow these things, um, uh, will notice perhaps uh, that s some of these categorizations uh, are somewhat borrowed from an article that ran in Harper's a year or two ago by a young writer named Madison Smart Bell, who just threw together uh, eight or nine writers, in including uh, two on this panel, and um, said this kind of fits everybody except a couple of exceptions. And so, I, more to be ornery, I guess, than anything else, I thought I, I would really, you know, toss these at, at our, our panelists. How about the idea that this surface detail um, in some way is at the expense of other things, um, that th there's a lack in uh, the fiction we're talking about of moral fervor, of moral conflict, of uh, intellectuality. Um, well, uh, <laughs> just, just, I, I just do have something to say about this. You know, I, reje I reject that notion. I mean, it, See, again, I don't even feel that I'm particularly speaking for myself here because I don't think that these are characteristics which personally I could imagine anyone applying to, to what I write. But I, w I feel as if I'm in the position of having to defend some other writers who I really admire a lot. And what I would say is just that there are so many different ways of thickening, to use your word. There are so many different ways of telling a story. Um, and there are sort of you can tell a story just by telling it, or you can tell it very in a very kind of in a very kind of uh, almost evasive way. You can you can kind of do what Virginia Woolf did in the years and only give the scenes that are that are sort of seem to be trivial and leave all the dramatic moments out. Um, you know, I think that we live in an age which is sort of obsessed with the notion of surfaces and depths and the idea of surface detail implying that there has to be a depth. And I think that a lot of writers, particularly writers who are dealing with the lives of fairly inarticulate sort of uh, working class communities, um, kind of reject that notion and, and sort of say, well, you know, let's look, let's not, let's look at the world the way it exists, which is that there are these details and this is what, this is what there is. And these details tell, I mean, you know, there's a phrase that always gets bandied about in writing workshops, which is the significant detail, looking for the significant detail. The point is, if you have a story made up exclusively of insignificant details, it's gonna be an insignificant story. But um, it seems to me that the writers that, that, that tend to come under this particular line of attack are masters of significant detail. I'll just, to, to charge this up a bit with, with a quote or two. I, I was looking before the, the panel at a collection that uh, came out, I guess in the last year or so, um, 20 Under 30, 
and uh, edited by Deborah Spark. And in the introduction uh, to that, she's uh, plainly a supporter of, of uh, writing by, by the author she's chosen. She nonetheless made a couple of you know, comments about her own objections to new fiction. Uh, she said, for instance, quote, young writers tend to have a limited range of experience and their stories often demonstrate this. Too many tales of family strife, early love affairs, college mishaps. Uh, new fiction, too simplistic, seems not to understand the complexities of conflict. Uh, and then I thought very nicely went on to say that Tolstoy was certainly wrong about almost everything. Um, I wonder this, I wonder if in looking at the world, looking at the detail. Now this is the editor of 20 Under 30. Um, here, there's a novel that came out recently, I think the Times just reviewed it, The World As I Found It. Many of us in the National Book Critics Circle found it an unusual first novel and that it has pages and pages of uh, the philosophy of Wittgenstein just kind of exposited uh, and we all some people thought it worked, some people thought it didn't, but we all kind of felt it very unusual to find this in a novel these days that most uh, young fiction writers sort of know they're not supposed to do that kind of thing. D um, do you know that? I haven't um, read it, but I, I've read about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, is there a sense that the, the, that sort of writing is not really what we think of today as uh, emblematic of the new fiction, if there is such a thing? I, I don't want to take away mm -hmm. other people's chances to say things here. I just, I don't have a sense of what the new fiction should be. Mm -hmm. um, I feel as open to a novel like that as, I mean, it seems to me you have to, as a reader, and I'm speaking here as a reader, not a writer, be open to all kinds of experience. That's the whole point of, of reading. Um, and, uh, you know, um, you're if you're talking about sort of what, what we, what I as a, as a reader like, that's a very different question than asking about what's popular in the meat, what's sort of made popular. Pop, what's popular is what is promoted. It's, and, and what is promoted is really a function of the book industry, not a function of writers. I, I don't know, I find myself um, somehow resisting your very premise in the sense that um, thinking of our sort of a couple just very popular, great, or I think great writers of our time. I think of Milan Kundera, who regularly does that, who regularly quotes philosophers and writers and whomever, and and takes them on in his fiction to great success. Or an equally great writer such as um, Garcia Marquez, who who never does that, who tells a story completely from an invented context, and sticks to the level of his invention, whereby all the intellectualization is metaphoric. And I think to sort of say one kind of writing is intellectual and another kind of storytelling is not, is not only not fair, but just, just not very useful. Um, I mean, I think there's overt, overt ideological moralistic writing and there's <coughs> subtle ideological and moralistic writing and certainly there's plenty of writing that has no level of important content but it's, it is hard to, once again to speak in general but I don't think that we're living in a time without major writers in many countries including our own addressing moral issues 
I, I think we're fortunate in that way. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you say. I, I was thinking of, of Kundera and, and people like that as the kind of example that would be raised up, though, against uh, younger American writers. Um, why aren't there more of, of that kind of writer? Well, I don't think you can be Kundera if you're young. <laughs> I mean, I think you sort of have to grow, grow into being Kundera. Cynthia Ozick, has, who is one of my favorite writers and certainly a profoundly intellectual writer, has a wonderful essay called The Lesson of the Master, which is sort of about the mistake she made when she was a young writer of trying to write late Henry James in her 20s. And it's about a novel she tried to write, which was to be called Mercy, Pity, Peace, and Love, um, that she never finished. And it's a very deeply mournful essay because the, the gist of it is that she's telling us she lost her youth because she tried to be the elderly, bald-headed Henry James when she was in her 20s. Instead, she should have remembered that James was young too and that James struck out his one feeble, paltry little note. Um, and, and, and her advice to young writers is do what you can do. Don't aspire to the great masters in their old age. Look at them at their, in their youth. And Carlin, there's never going to be many Henry Jameses or Kunderas. You're asking more of our century than uh, has ever been. I'm just a messenger of these, uh, <laughs> these claims. And I also, I also want to dispute the notion that, that there isn't anyone writing, or there aren't many people who have written what could be called philosophical fiction, because just to sort of mention someone on this panel, I think Deborah Eisenberg's fiction is a deeply philosophical and sort of contemplative aspect to it. There's a lot of of thought, of just sort of pure thought, and and yet that is a collection of stories which which got a lot of very deserved attention. Thanks, David. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll back off. No, I I just I wanted to give um, an example that mm -hmm. just to sort of counter the idea that quote unquote philosophical fiction uh, doesn't get noticed. Well, now where where in this fits what? I guess one reviewer called uh, nightclub fiction. Um, Tama Janowitz, um, Paul Rudnick, I don't know, does, does he fit? Um, a certain sort of fiction, which I, again, I don't, I don't think I, I need to do a little uh, definition of, but I think when Bell was writing his article, he was probably thinking a little bit of that when he used the word you know, nihilism, that um, it's not just that um, people maybe haven't reached the stage yet where they're writing philosophical fiction, but that um, there's a definite decision not to be bothered with that kind of thing and to, to uh, cover a different sort of life. Now, I, I guess my reaction as a, as a book critic is that Tama Janowitz creates ripples, at least as far as perceptions go on, on new fiction. So does Ellis, uh, so, so does Rudnick. And they're ripples that somehow you people have to deal with. Do you, do, you, do you feel that there's a perception out there that somehow uh, can be traced to their work, um, even their personas, um, their, their um, promotional campaigns, if that's you know, the word? Yeah, I guess what I'm, what I'm asking is um, what effect does it have on you as, as, as young fiction writers that there is this thing that happened um, that there was this small group of, of novels, Tama Janowitz's novel, which got a lot of publicity, um, Paul Rudnick's, which didn't get as much publicity, but also you know, had to do with being sort of you know, smart, hip, um, New York. And how does that affect your image 
as you feel it to the outside world. I mean, we were we were talking a little bit, uh, you know, at, at dinner of the fact about the fact that you feel there are these images that are not correct about you and that cannot be traced to you, but can be traced to other writers. Um, and I think those are a couple of the writers. So. Well, yeah, I guess I'm, <laughs> I'm the one who, he who, who he claimed to have an opinion on this about question. this. <laughs> um, yeah, I kept, I kept spouting the phrase guilt by association <laughs> when we were at dinner. Um, well, it seems to me that there is a difference between wanting to promote a book that you've written and wanting to promote yourself. And um, there have been s some writers who, who have done some sort of amazing uh, uh, campaigns of, of self-publicity um, aimed, it seems to me, at, at sort of making themselves celebrities as much as as, as getting their books read. Um, and what I have found has happened to me uh, has been what I, what I called earlier kind of guilt by association. It seems to me there are just as many writers who are basically uh, working hard and are maybe are definitely interested in their books becoming famous, but aren't particularly interested in themselves becoming famous. I mean, I certainly can say that for myself. And I think I could probably, I wouldn't be risking very much to say that I could say that for all four of us here. Um, and the problem is that, that, that whenever anyone uh, commits an act of self-promotion, regardless of, of, of what you think of self-promotion, you know, whether you think it's wrong or whether you think it's fine, the point is that, that, that uh, it gets the media interested. And once the media is interested, they start noticing phenomena and groups. And, um, and you start finding yourself, or at least I started finding myself my name sort of appended at the end of a list of other names of writers who I really felt I had nothing to do with. And also, usually in, in a fairly critical context, like you can always see like uh, X, Y, Z, and David Levitt can always be found hanging around downtown in New York's nightclubs or things like that. And I would read this and I would say, wait a minute, you know, I've never been to Nell's. I was, we were talking about this earlier. This is not my lifestyle. This is, and, and self-promotion is not my lifestyle. I'm a writer, I write books, and, and if a book I write becomes well-known, that's great. I have more power to the book. But I don't want to be well-known in and of myself in that way. Um, I would always say that I, my literary ideal in terms of lifestyle is Ann Tyler who manages to write these books that are read by everybody and very famous and very popular, but never goes out of her house. <laughs> Anyone want to add to that? <laughs> Anybody else want to be anti no, uh, right. Here, Here's a nice, safe, journalistic construction. It's been claimed. Always nice to hide behind that. It's been claimed that young fiction writers are too responsive to the demands of the post-TV publishing business. That is, the most marketable cultural objects in the age of the short attention span are works that have simple, easy to understand themes and a consistent, uniform image. Now, again, that's, that's uh, a little complicated and it could go in any direction, but I guess the core question there is, do you have any sense at all of the publishing industry and its desires as something that you need to take into account when you're working on a project? 
No, never. <laughs> uh, no. 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 Never. And absolutely not. Me, not. They're, <laughs> they're not writing for Dodd Mead. They're not writing for Knopf. They're not writing for I anybody would, else's expectations. I would say only one thing, and I think that, that this is a particularly a, something particular to me as a gay writer, which is that I do find myself worrying a lot about whether people are going to bash me for writing about the lives of gay people. That's something I worry about, and I fight like the devil to keep that from bleeding into my working self, because I always try to keep my working self completely protected from concerns like that, just so that I can write what I want to write. I wonder, I mean, that that's very interesting to hear, and it makes me wonder uh, if you haven't just pinned the terror of writing about anything onto that issue, because every time I lift up my pen or every time I put it down, I think, oh my God, you know, now it's actually in black and white sitting in front of me, and even I can read it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's quite, I find it quite uh, frightening, and I don't know whether that is actually something that one doesn't just displace onto the world of one's publisher, one's readership, mm -hmm. in an automatic, uh, sort of compulsive way. I, I don't mm -hmm. mean anything, I'm just saying that. <laughs> well, I wonder, it seems to me that that question could be uh, made a little bit more concrete too, especially if all the answers are no. Did any of you rewrite your books at all because an editor wanted you to rewrite something? or? Sure, of course, but that was that was always an aesthetic matter, not a matter mm -hmm. of, of of you know what sort of book they wanted to publish. Mm -hmm. If if an editor had ever said to me, "I want you to rewrite your book and make, give it a happy ending because we can sell more copies," I would have broke, torn that contract up mm -hmm. flat, and walked right out of the office. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely not. I mean, there's a lot of ways to make a living. This is only one of them, and right. <laughs> There really would be very little incentive, I think. Well, maybe not. Maybe if we're, we're trying to write romances or something. But for the kind of books we write and the kind of money we're paid, there's just very little incentive to shape it to any sort of market. I mean, I think anyone who does it is doing it for the love of it. And, and I think that's fairly simple. There was at least one editor at, at, at Knopf who once uh, was explaining to me how she had, for instance, with one well-known writer's book, strongly, strongly counseled to get that man out of the book and that background nurse, expand that nurse, uh, make that nurse a major character, um, switch the time frame a little bit. Um, the, the advice w was followed, further advice was followed. Uh, we all know of cases where editors have a, a strong hand in, um, in shaping fiction. Now may maybe we don't have an example of somebody who's been in that position on the panel, but it seems to me that is a case where perhaps you're responding to an aesthetic, but it's an aesthetic that is likely backed up by something else, uh, right, the aesthetic totally. about The editor that I worked with was asking me to do anything because of some philosophy of the house, quote unquote. It was always to make the book the best book that it could be. 
and that is an editor's job, and I think that that's just fine. Um, but writers, you know, aren't that easily manipulated, and we tend to be very, uh, very attached to what we've written, and so we're, I think, pretty resistant to making changes anyway. Um, but I've, you know, the only experience I've ever had remotely like that might have been with The New Yorker, where occasionally you sort of come up against New Yorker style, quote unquote, but it was always on a very, very small level, where it was a matter of a word, or, or how a sentence was structured. It was never a matter of subject matter or, or, or characters. Maybe this is beating a dead horse, but I'll try it one more time. Um, <laughs> has anyone on the panel ever been in the situation where a decision was to be made? Uh, if, if you went along with some suggestion, perhaps from um, the editor-in-chief, perhaps from Gordon Lish, perhaps from someone else, um, the book was, was going to get published, and otherwise, well, you know, maybe take it down the street. Um, no. Well, no, I mean, I, I finished my book and then sold it, so, so they bought it, and what mm -hmm. could they do after they bought it? I mean, mm -hmm. I remember the most sort of strenuous argument I had with my editor, which went on for days, weeks, a long time, was over further and farther further versus farther, whether we should <laughs> use the sort of Oxford classic definition or whether we could go with the more idiomatic American mm -hmm. usage. Um, but it seems to me that I think once they buy the book, they've bought the book and they're more or less stuck with it. Well, I don't know legally, I mean, but mm -hmm. I've, that's not only never happened to me, I've never heard of it happening mm -hmm. to anyone that I know or any, any writer of quote unquote literary fiction. Well, this is a lucky panel in case you didn't, <laughs> you didn't think so before. I was oh. just going to say the biggest oh. argument I ever had with my editor was over the word crush. She didn't like the, I wanted to use the phrase to say someone had a crush on someone else and she didn't like it. We fought over that for <laughs> days and I finally won. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she just didn't uh -huh. like the expression. Word, word choices are nice. The, uh, <laughs> story once where Kundera apparently calls uh, his editor in, in New York, Aaron Asher, and uh, suggests things like, uh, you know, uh, Lothario rather than Womanizer, <laughs> and, uh, you know, from Paris, 3 a.m., so I guess that matters. Uh, well, well, yes, I mean, that's the thing, Colin, is that mm -hmm. the stakes are very high for mm -hmm. us, and they're rather low for our publishers, because mm -hmm. as right. Mona says, you know, they're, they're dealing in very small amounts of money them, and yet for us it's our whole lives, so naturally if they're battles, they're going to be over words, and mm -hmm. we're likely to win. Right. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, l let me ask another uh, publishing question, if I may, and um, if, if I go too far in this direction, when we open it up to questions shortly, I hope you'll take it back in a, in a more respectable direction, but... Um, I'm, I'm curious because I certainly get a lot of this uh, in, in my job from writers in my part of the, the country uh, wondering about writing in New York. Uh, at first I thought maybe it was an antitrust violation to have five people who had books published by Knopf on this panel and so I, I was dredged out. Um, there's certainly a feeling I know among young writers that Knopf is one of the two or three places that uh, you really should be published. I said at dinner, if you had contract offers from Dodd Mead or, or Knopf, I mean, would it be a, a tough decision? Um, now, I wonder, honestly, how much does it matter 
if you're going to be a successful young fiction writer today, which house you publish with? Do you have just as good a chance at uh, Dodd Mead or Athenaeum or Ferris Drouse or Prentice Hall? I don't know, this reminds me, um, my landlord's granddaughter is applying for college right now, even as we speak, and I got a knock on the door from very early in the morning recently from my landlord who says, I know you're a writer, you've published this book, will you please help my granddaughter with her college essay? Um, <laughs> and there's a big conflict within her family. Suzette is her name. Um, Suzette wants more than anything on the earth to go to Ann Arbor, but her father believes that U of Penn or Harvard or Yale is the ticket to you know, life in general. Um, and it, it reminds me a lot of that question. I mean, I suppose there are some advantages to going to Harvard, um, but there's also a lot of other factors. And it's just as simple as that. And as obvious, I think. Yeah, I mean, of course there are some publishers which are sort of more prestigious than others or more desirable than others, primarily because, well, the kinds of factors that you consider are what do the books look like, how well are they promoted, um, uh, who else is published by that publisher. You know, you want to be in the company of writers that you admire. But the most important factor, it seems to me, is the editor, almost exclusively. Mm, I yeah. uh, think that that can't be overemphasized. I mean. Dodd Mead is a peculiar example because I, my, if my memory serves me, Dodd Mead yeah, is owned by a born-again Christian publishing company. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of, I think for all four of us, sort of a moot point. Dodd Mead is not going <laughs> to publish any of us. I told you there would be trick questions. Uh, they don't <laughs> publish books with the word shit in them, if I recall. Uh -huh. um, so, um, but, you know, given the, that, that factor, I would say, you know, of course, I just moved. I just changed publishers. And, and there were a lot of considerations that I was going through. There were some publishers that I thought were more prestigious or had nicer looking books or seemed to promote their books better than others. Usually, those three criterion would, would apply to three different publishers. But finally, it was entirely a matter of the editor. It was almost exclusively a matter of the editor. I think it's also a matter of the book. I mean, I think as readers, we very seldom think who is the publisher of this book I'm reading? I was just thinking of um, of a hundred years of solitude, or of of Midnight's Children, or you know, sort of famous contemporary books that I've read in in, in paperbacks that had pictures of people making love on the cover and, and things like that. I mean, I think that books gain their audiences over time, and the publisher of the book is likely to have changed several times before a reader actually even gets to it. I mean, it might be in a mass market paperback or in a reprint or, um, I mean, I think really the book is the, is the central determinant here. So are, are, say, young writers in MFA programs who are sitting waiting for their responses from Knopf thinking that if Knopf doesn't take my novel, I'm just gonna jump out the window, are they kind of nuts? Well, they're only as nuts as someone who says, I'm going to commit suicide if I don't get into Harvard. <laughs> I mean, except that it isn't even that clear cut because, you know, there isn't such a clear, Knopf doesn't have that sort of clear predominance. And plus, if you have any kind of a, a ear to the ground or you know anything about what's going on in the publishing industry and how unstable it is, you know that Knopf has just undergone enormous changes. Um, other publishers sometimes are on the rise and sometimes seem to be sort of going down. Some publishers are completely stable. 
I would say, I would say this, and maybe this is a terrible thing to admit, but when I'm browsing in a bookstore at new books of fiction, if I see that a book is published by Knopf, I'll tend to be more likely to open it up than if it, than if it's published by um, Crown. Uh -huh. But the reason for that mm -hmm. is because I know the editors at Knopf, and I trust their their taste, and I think that if they if they have chosen have chosen to publish this book. There's a good chance that I'll like it. Now, recently I met some editors at Crown, and, and since meeting them, I'm much more likely to look twice at a book from Crown. You know, it's you have these pre, these assumptions if you know anything about the publishing industry. But sort of meeting anyone in the publishing industry is likely to completely decimate them. Yeah, I was not to, to dominate, but I, I was I was actually I'm a Knopf author myself, and I'm very pleased with Knopf as my publisher. But I don't do that at all in bookstores. Um, you know, I feel there's a lot of Knopf books I feel no sympathy for, and many books elsewhere I, I love. Um, I also think this kind of question is, one's answer depends very much on one's inherent trust in authority in, in, in systems of meritocracy. I mean, most, whether or not you think a Harvard degree matters is, is very analogous to whether you think the imprint of a publisher matters. It's, it's depends on your background and, and, and many of us who who you know maybe did not have I mean you're you're sort of implying that there is a track to becoming a famous writer. Um, you know, do XYZ and MFA at in the right place and, and that's the sort of implicit assumption perhaps. And That's true. Yeah, and, and possibly there is in I don't know. I, I there as in most things in America there might be a lot of people who do something a certain way, but if you have any independent judgment yourself, you might question the product of such a system of decisions. If you, for example, come from a family that's not upper class, if you, for example, went to public schools, you might begin to suspect over time that the meritocracy is just a means of basically maintaining institutions rather than serving any individual need, and literature is always a matter of one voice reaching a reader. It's a very personal experience. So you're, there seems to be a sort of assumption here that many of us might question. Well, I was just going to say specifically about, about Knopf. I think there, Knopf does have a particular cachet for fiction, particularly for fiction by younger writers. And, and I was thinking just now about why it did. And it occurred to me that it was entirely because of this sort of giant psych-out that Bob Gottlieb performed in the years that he was there. He was this amazing, uh, he is this amazing, uh, terribly, uh, in, t in some ways intimidating man who, who manages to convince you within one second of meeting him that you are lucky to be being published by this company and uh, that, that you should just sort of, uh, that um, in a sense the company will always have a greater reputation than you. That in a sense the, su the, 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 the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Now that was a, now in a sense he 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 was a genius because he pulled it off completely, um, and this was almost uh, this this tendency of his I think to sort of create this image for Knopf was almost a sort of side effect of his real publishing genius. But um, in a sense, as soon as I heard the news that Gottlieb was leaving Knopf, suddenly that sense of of, of Knopf as the greatest publisher, Knopf as a publisher that you should be grateful to be being published by disappeared for me because it was so much associated with him and with the sort of way he published. 
Um, now maybe that's a little too specific, but I think that it is worth addressing the particular case of Knopf, because I think I, I've always found that, felt that um, from Knopf. And, um, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch what, what will, it'll be interesting to watch what will happen to Knopf post Bob Gali. I don't have that feeling about Knopf, although I, I miss running into Bob Gottlieb in the hall. But, but um, I've been sitting here silent for a long time and wondering when a question might come up that had to do with language, which is, you know, we talked about I don't know, sort of po political message and philosophical and intellectual uh, obligations and and and. Language. I mean, that's what, that's what it is. There's, there was, a, I think it's in the current Paris Review. There's um, an interview with uh, Francine Gray in which she says our, the writer's only obligation is to literary form, and I think she goes on and says the only, uh, only bad writing is unpolitical writing or some such thing, and I don't know. I mean, can we talk about that? Well, as I, as I promised you, I was going to ask the crassest question. Of, and, uh, and leave the respectable ones to the audience. Um, the, uh, what I, I, I wanted to own up to what, what uh, in, Mona. Uh, sorry, Mona was saying in that I do think that I was implying that and I think I'm, I'm sort of throwing out a perception that people on the National Book Critic Circle have and a, and a lot of people on my side of the industry which is that it's, it's not that somehow bad writers are, are somehow being elevated by Kanaf but that traditionally, and I'm glad David said what he did about the change because I think that is uh, noticed by everyone, that out of the entire set of good writers in the country, there's a subset, the subset published by Knopf and the subset that sometimes is published by Knopf and rooted in New York that has a great advantage over writers elsewhere in the country and that um, is part of a publicity machine um, that makes it more possible for them to reach a wider audience. I think it's wonderful that they do reach a wider audience, but what I wanted to do was sort of throw the perception on our side that, and we're at fault because I think there's a habit with a lot of assigning book editors around the country to semi-automatically assign the Knopf Book of Fiction, but not assign the Putnam Book of Fiction, the Athenaeum Book of Fiction, the North Point Book of Fiction, and that does make a difference, just as who's on the cover of the New York Times book review makes a difference. So what I wonder is that from your side of the business, are you aware of this? I mean, or do you feel it doesn't exist? And do you, do you have to respond to it in, in any way, or does it just kind of wash over you? I seem to be answering all these crass questions oh, yeah. with very crass <laughs> answers, but I'm a, he's a great crass answer. <laughs> um, I think that uh, I can't deny that this is true. I wish I could, but I can't. And what I want to all I would like to point out though is that I think it's a mistake to say that there's a publicity machine. My experience with Knopf has always been that Knopf has has a fairly ordinary publicity machine. They don't seem to publicize all that much. Mm. What is true is that people do pay more attention two books that have a Borzoi on them, and the reason that they do is because Bob Gottlieb convinced them to. And I think it's that simple. What? Please, Mona. No, Good competition. <laughs> well, Mona, don't both give up. Mona? Oh, I'll, I'll just say, I really think that books gain their audiences over time. Um, and I think if 
something makes a huge publicity splash, I don't know, and, and sells a lot right away, that's really not the essential question in the book's life. I mean, I think that, that word of mouth cannot be underestimated um, for, for a book's longevity. Um, I'm thinking oh, of absolutely. Marilyn Robinson's housekeeping. I read somewhere recently that hundreds of thousands of copies of, the, of this, this novel are in print and have sold over, I mean it was published maybe eight, nine years ago, a long, long time ago. And I doubt that when it came out, it made much of a huge splash. I think it probably got good reviews, but I don't think it was, you know, on bestseller lists or made into, you know, major motion pictures or anything. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I really think that possibly in, in emphasizing short-term rather than long-term success, we're, we're ignoring what it is we all write for and what it is we all read for. Um, well, that's the that's sort of what these particularly, as Carlin himself said, crass questions ignore, mm -hmm. is that the sort of, I mean, I feel as if I have two selves, in a sense, professionally. I have my right, the, the, the part of me which is a writer and the part of me which necessarily has to think about my career and to sort of think about all these crass matters of sort of immediate sales and contracts and publishers. And, and it is so, I cannot emphasize this more, you have to keep them totally separate. If you allow the one to affect the other, you're really going to corrupt yourself. Um, and and, and I've, I've, trying, I've, I've always found it pretty easy to keep them separate. But I also think that it's a mistake or just a lie to pretend that, that's, that none of us think about these things. Because I think we really do, at least I do. I know I do. I can't help it. I wish I didn't. I'm not proud of it. But I do because I'm, a, you know, I live in the world and I have to earn money, and and um, and because like anyone who has a career, I'm sort of curious about my career, and about you know it, the various aspects of it. I suppose there are writers who just sit and write and are completely unconcerned with these things, but um, in a sense, I think I think they're pretty rare. Much as I would, would now like to ask a question that would earn me a pat on the back from Lionel Trilling or, or someone like that, um, I'm going to hold such questions in reserve because I know that there are probably wonderful questions sitting out there that will uh, make mine very forgettable. We can always come back to my questions in reserve if there aren't, but why don't we open it up a little bit. Questions? Uh, that's probably welcome. The, the question, if you couldn't hear it, is uh, I think what psych psychological needs or desires are addressed by writing? Yeah. And, and success, you, ca you can't say success because we did that already. Well, I think we're all, we're undoubtedly all smiles up here to hear that question because, of course, that's really what we're dealing with every day is that, you know, incredibly powerful impulse to to write and that need to write and that 
desire to write. And I mean, I have absolutely no idea what the answer is, but I'm so glad to hear you address it. <laughs> I, I mean, I do, I absolutely live to, uh, to do this. And I, unlike the other panelists, I started uh, writing very late, you know, in my mid-30s. And uh, I find that, for me, it, it is a way of understanding the world and trying to make some sense of it. And now that I've started to do it, I just can't live without it. So that's a preface to everybody else's answer. <laughs> that's a wonderful answer. I, <laughs> I couldn't say it any better. No other needs or desires? Well, I think what Deborah said about understanding the world. But I, I guess all I would add to that would be wanting to communicate something. I mean, you know, there's this urge that everybody knows when you sort of, you're walking in the street and you see something happen and you go home and you, and you, you, say, you say to someone, I just saw the most incredible thing on the street. You know, I, let me tell you about it. I want to, the idea to sort of convey something, to, to make it come alive in the mind of someone who wasn't there. That is a passion. I mean, I think for writers, that's a passion. That's, that, that goes beyond uh, the, the kind of uh, passing on of anecdotes and it becomes a way of life. And I think when you do that, you find yourself embellishing and putting a little better spin on the thing that just happened. Lying. And it's almost um, not even a, a, a thought out thing. I mean, you know, we're all storytellers. We all just what David was saying, and yet, and, and yet, along with that, you want to improve it, make it just a little more ironic, you know, and, and, and it's sort of, maybe it just starts there and escalates. I was, I was thinking of that question that, I mean, we've all, and, and I've, I've been an exception, had a lot of jobs of, of you know, one kind or another, and in a certain way, and, you know, maybe even good jobs, or jobs with value, but in a certain way, this is the only thing I've ever done that's really mattered. I mean, most jobs I've had after three months, six months, a year, got to a point where if I'd been up late the night before and was very fuzzy all day and really did much, not much of anything, that was okay after a certain amount of time. Well, with writing, that's never okay. I mean, there's no, there's no clock. There's no pretending. It's, it's just, it's really, you're, it's what matters most to you. You're doing what counts um, to yourself. And, and so as on a psychological level, it's an incredibly profound organizing principle in your life. It's like having a, a vocation of some sort or, or raising a child or something that everything you do matters, which is kind of a rare thing in our time <laughs> to feel that. Other questions?
David Levitt gave me a great piece of advice, <coughs> which was, don't, <laughs> if you've written about somebody, don't show it to them, the story, the novel, but don't show it to them until it's a book, until it's in print, because that, the pride in that, will outweigh this <laughs> And I found that to be absolutely true. Well, I mean, there are, there are a lot of, there are a lot of dimensions funny. to that question. Um, I think I've never been able to stop myself from writing about something out of fear. Fear certainly comes into it, and I certainly feel what, what, what Deborah described, that sort of incredible terror of putting your pen to the paper. My God, how can I be writing this? You know, but it's never stopped me. Um, afterwards, when you're sort of considering publishing whatever it is you've written, then you may start to have hesitations and fears. And, uh, and I, I mean, I think what Amy just said, which I, I guess I did tell her, um, has been how I've always dealt with it. I mean, you know, ultimately, you know, my mother said to me early on in my career, never, and this was such a blessing in a sense, she said, I want you to know I never want you to not write anything because of me. Oh my God. And that was such a salvation to me that, that she would have told me that because she believed in literature or in me making literature more than, than she feared embarrassment. And I think she also trusted me to tell the truth. And that was, that was wonderful. Um, I, this is a question that comes up every day. Almost everything that you write, at some point or other, you think, oh my God, what if so-and-so reads this? What am I going to do? You just, deal, you just have to cope with it. But if you let it stop you, then you're really, th that's a terrible mistake, a terrible mistake. I'm filled with admiration for your mother. My family has pretty much said the opposite. <laughs> um, and I, I actually, I've shown everything I've published to my family before. I, I haven't written directly about them and I've been told that I better not. Um, I, I think it is a very tricky question. Um, and I think it's more a question of what to publish rather than what to write. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had a, a class, though, that I'll, I'll, I'll mention in graduate school. Um, there was a story, a really good story, turned in by, by Nancy Lemon, who's, who's a, a young writer, um, who you probably know the work of. And there was something with the ending. The ending seemed sort of soft, or it just didn't seem quite right. And in the middle of the class, she said, well, actually, really what should happen in the ending is the bride and groom should have a huge, terrible fight, but I just feel too cruel. It's just too cruel to, to write it the way it really happened. And, and the teacher, who, who wasn't given to sort of pronouncements of, of this kind, stood up. It was the last day of class. It was the last day of graduate school and said, if you all want to be writers, it's a, it's a terribly unrewarding, hard life. And... Um, there's going to come a time when you're going to have to hurt somebody. And when that time comes, go ahead and do it. <laughs> That's what he said. Gee, I think I may be the person who disagrees here. Uh, no, I do too. <laughs> I haven't done that. I mean, it's the question of, I mean, people do. We're all human beings, so we the only thing we know about human life is from human beings, and that's our concern. But I think that 
I mean, we really can. You can really wreck somebody's life. I mean, you can just wreck somebody's life. And I, I just don't think it's a good idea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I mean, I agree, you really mustn't, it is a very, very tricky problem because you really can't, I mean, I think David is absolutely right when he said several times, um, you know, apropos of several different things, you must really defend yourself from fears. You must uh, just be terribly, you, you must just sort of harden your heart to all the fears that will invade you and try to overcome you and try to keep you from being honest and try to keep you from working. And I really couldn't agree more. I, I just think that that's so true. And heavens, you know, everything militates against uh, writing honestly or writing truthfully. But I think that there is... You know, if you're going to deal with the world of facticity and personal lives, I think that you really must either, as Mona says, not publish certain things or, or you must just turn your attention elsewhere uh, to other things or you must be very careful to disguise certain things because uh, because I really don't think that I mean I think that there are ways of telling the truth and doing what you want to do without wrecking somebody's life and if there aren't I, I, I don't think it's worth wrecking somebody's life that's yeah I, I was going to say too that I think that um I mean, you know, do unto others. Not very few of us would, would wish to be a recognizable character in someone's published work. I certainly wouldn't. Also, I've noticed that the times that I haven't published things because they were taken too directly from, from life, um, the same ideas or themes have at a later time emerged in a more metaphoric form. And mm. I think that's, that's likely to happen. I just want I suppose I would question whether, I mean, I can't, and again, I may just not know of this experience, but I can't think of anyone, of, of a sort of case of someone's life being wrecked by a piece of fiction. Um, my experience has always been that the writer imagines that the person's life is going to be wrecked, but the actual response is much more mild. Like, I, I had an example of that in my, in my book of stories, something that I was absolutely convinced that after he read it, my brother would never speak to me. Well, my brother read this thing, and he, he was angry, and he was upset, but he got over it. it took, you know, we talked about it. It was about a two-day thing. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe I just haven't raised the stakes. Of course you don't want to make something... person feared being recognized, but just because that person was hurt and embarrassed that you noticed something that he or she did, which you perceived as, 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 as in a negative way. Well, back then. Sure, that there are grudges. I just, I guess, what I would, 
All I would say is that, and, and I don't say this so much to argue with Deborah, as sort of to appease her, I think. Oh, no. I don't think lives are really often wrecked by fiction. I don't think fiction is that powerful. I'm, I'm curious, uh, the question as originally posed really had to do more with, uh, I guess, the, the harm felt by the person who's in the book, even if a character, a real person is disguised and no one else knows, that person knows, and that's what I think David just right. referred to. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious about the selfishness that, that goes into to writing. Uh, is there a feeling sometimes that anything is grist for, for the, the writer's mill? I think it goes both ways. I would say yes. You know, sure, I, I, I'll do anything. I mean, I think, I think you know, it's not an original notion, but I think mm. the crime is writing badly, not what you write mm. about. On the other hand, I can also admit that there's a story I'm dying to write, and I will not write it while my grandmother's alive. Mm -hmm. okay, so. mm -hmm. I, I wondered whether selfishness is actually, as a concept, as an issue, something that you ever have to think about even more broadly than in the case of, um, of just harming somebody who's been within your life. I mean, is it the case if you're going to be a really productive writer and a, and a writer who, who has the energy to write that being a writer always trumps those other moral considerations? I think Deborah was saying no, but um, certainly if you're writing about what you're supposed to know, your life, it would seem your decision is mostly going to be, well, the writing comes first and the feelings of others come second. Again, I think it's a difference between what you write and what you publish. Mm -hmm. You know, you of course make decisions about how and when you publish things. But I have never, I mean, I think if I were, were Amy and had this story, I wouldn't wait until my grandmother died to write it, but I'd probably wait until my grandmother died to publish it. You heard David it here first. Me. Question right Can everybody hear that question? Sure. <laughs> well, it's it's hard to think of examples sort of sort of uh, under pressure from an audience, but but um, uh, y you know yeah, of course it's fiction comes out of the most unlikely places. Less and less so, I think. I, I just just mentioned, did you, are, are you referring at all to this essay by William Gass? I can't remember if it's running. <laughs> this is what we're all Is this, is this running in the, the Sunday coming or the Sunday past? You Sunday tend to forget. Past. The Sunday past, right, okay. Um, no, that was mm -hmm. the subject of his essay. Mm -hmm. The essay was called A Failing Grade for the Present Tense. Mm -hmm. Everyone switching to Blue Perfect? Well, I'm just, 
I, I wrote a book, my first book was almost exclusively in the present tense, and my second book was in the past tense. And I think that both tenses have their uses. The advantage, to my mind, of the present tense is if you really want to focus in on a scene and make it very palpable, as if to give the reader the feeling of, of living in the scene, especially if it's something which is taking place in real time. In other words, where the time of the narrative is, is the time of the reading, you know, uh, as opposed to, say, a narrative which will cover several years and several pages, a narrative in which several pages, ev pretty much everything that happens is, is stated. The present tense allows you to zero in on details and, on, uh, on sort of, and to sort of crystallize images in a very precise way that I find the past tense is less, one can do less successfully with the past tense. And now in, in writing novels, after writing stories, I found that it was often very interesting to uh, sort of do short takes in the present tense when that was the goal that you wanted to achieve. Um, the past tense, it seems to me, is more successful for a sort of a larger narrative sweep. Um, I, I haven't really written much in the present tense at all. Um, I wrote one story, I guess, in sort of a conditional present tense. Like, I, the first line was, I steal, but I meant that in a repeated fashion. Um, but I, I would defend it um, in a case like um, Tilly Olson's I Stand Here Irony, for example. Um, and I think part of the trend, possibly, was the sense that past tense um, contains a sort of inherent nostalgia. And I think the present tense stories that um, are very famous, I think, of the last 20 years by Raymond Carver and, and, and other people, were almost a deliberate stylistic statement against that small flicker of nostalgia that seems to inhere in past tense. Yes, uh, yes, that sounds absolutely right to absolutely. me. Absolutely. And also there's, of course, the obvious thing, so obvious one can hardly even uh, mention it, is that in the past tense there's an inherent completedness to the event. Mm -hmm. And if you want something that sort of isn't quite cooked yet, that uh, is just by its nature open-ended or unterminated, well, present tense is the most expeditious way to possibly get that feeling. Uh, so it's, it's very useful, it seems to me. I mean, it's, it's hard to use, it's hard to manipulate, and it's, I guess it is so used now that you tend to uh, uh, get a sort of taint of mannerisms that you may not want. On the other hand, nothing else will sort of serve if that's what you want. It's just like speaking. You use one tense or another for specific purposes. My work. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I mean, in a sense, 
I think that you do have a point. I, for, and, and this is something I wouldn't, I can't really substantiate, but I have an, you're saying this makes me feel that this is intuitively true, that characters in present tense stories are somehow more vulnerable. But I think that that has to do with what Deborah pointed out, or I know actually what Mona pointed out. What one of you pointed out, I'm having trouble remembering because they both came from this side of the table. Uh, the point about, um, about uh, the inherent completedness of the past tense. That was Deborah, right? Okay. Um, that may be why. In a sense, if you know that a story has happened and took place in the past, you're distanced a little bit from the characters, and therefore they, can, they seem almost protected by the fact that this all happened long ago. Uh, when you're reading something in the present tense, there isn't that sense of, of distance. You're one step closer to the characters. Uh, that you're at one fewer remove. And that, uh, I think, contributes to that. I was just going to say, it seems to me the best way to answer this question is not by talking about it, but by trying a, a sort of exercise, which would be to take something written in the present tense and just, as an experiment, rewrite it in the past tense, or vice versa. I've done that just to see. And it's always interesting what you find when, when you do that rewriting. Uh, you find that often the, the tone and the feeling of the, of the fiction you're dealing with changes totally. And it becomes very apparent why the, the fiction in question had to be in the tense it was in. There's also a kind of, um, with the present tense, there's, there's often a kind of spoken feel to the, to, to the prose in the sense that you might say, you know, telling a story in real life, I might say, so I go into the store and the guy says to me, well, that, that can sometimes be mimicked in fiction and just gives it a more more spoken sense of one voice, one idiosyncratic voice, rather than a, a narrator per se. And then also, I was thinking of um, a story in Raymond Carver's first collection, which at the end switches from past tense to present tense, and, and sort of echo the feeling Deborah Deborah was talking about. It's, it's the whole story is in past tense, and then in the last line, it goes to present tense. Mm -hmm. Will you please be quiet, oh, please? Oh, okay. And it ends up sort of, and, and we're still here right now, and it's still going on. So. <laughs> I suppose that thing. I thought, and the, 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 a lot of his stories have, even if they don't do that literally, have that feeling. There's this sort of turn at the end. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a question? Yeah. You hear that question in the back? Yes. Okay. Uh, that's a, a, a very good question, and the answer is uh, probably more than we would choose to admit. I think. Um, I think probably there are certain things that one subconsciously chooses before starting to write. Um, 
because of, of, of sort of fears that are so large, you almost can't even confront them in your conscious mind. As far as libel is concerned, though, um, you know, uh, I, I don't really think anything I write has any bearing on national security. But um, as far as libel is concerned, um, you know, there are things you could, it seems to me what you have to do is you just have to write the thing the way you want to write it, and then afterwards consult, a, just have it, have it given a legal reading. At this point, a legal reading is an almost standard part of publishing any book. And usually publishers have lawyers who specialize in this kind of thing who are able to isolate potentially libelous passages so that you can make whatever necessarily changes you have to make in order to protect yourself. What do you mean? Um, that hasn't really been my experience. They've usually been pretty reasonable. I mean, I was always sort of surprised at what the lawyers told me was potentially libelous because it was never what I imagined was potentially libelous. It was sort of saying, well, you better make this guy six feet tall if the character person he's based on is, is five foot one. It's that kind of thing. I was just going to mention that Bob Woodward is going around these days saying that nothing he has written impacts on national security either. So <laughs> you, you can't necessarily well. believe these people. Yeah. There was a question over there before. It's a sort of, I just do. I mean, this is, this is, you can hate me for it, but this, <laughs> it's very hard to say. I think based on the, what the cover of the book is like and how it's published primarily. Please. Is that terrible? They, 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 I think Penn, Penn did try to get somebody to represent the non-literary writer, right? You put out a lot of invitations for nobody. Okay. Okay. So. No, do we? think you can tell just by reading it. You can tell if it when has somebody a swastika on the uh, well, cover. No, but I mean, or, uh, when, okay, it was, I shouldn't have mentioned the covers because, you know, right. that's all publishing. But, you know, you look at a book and you can tell whether the person who's writing it is right, cares about writing and is clearly <laughs> primarily interested in the writing or if they're interested in making a buck. It's just, you can just tell. I can think of very few times when I can't tell. Maybe that's naive of me. Maybe I'm deceived often, but that's how I make the distinction. Well, I mean, I think I think the awkwardness of your question is one has to admit that what really the word literary has almost become a synonym for serious or good, um, and the other, you know, I guess you'd say non-literary has become sort of, in my mind at least, a synonym for not serious and and not good. <laughs> Which is not to say, I disagree with David in the sense that lots of books to me that are packaged as sort of arty books seem to me as pure pulp. And, and some books that are bestseller kind of books actually have a, a sort of serious intent and, and some high mindedness. I mean, I don't, I, don't think that, I don't think that you can tell by the jacket, but I think. You're right, correct. You know. <laughs> um, uh, well. And sometimes a book will seem, it seems that the publisher is marketing it one way or the other. I mean, I think we all sort of hope to write good books, you know, that will 
that will reach a large audience. So it's not, it's not the con, you know, the context, but the the content that determines that. But I think you know what I mean when I say that. I mean, the real test is in the reading. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the um, only test. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, I. There are certain books that are that are is in a sense the other thing is that if, again if you sort of know anything about the publishing industry, the publishing industry makes this sort of real distinction between literary fiction and commercial fiction, within its own ranks. At least that's always been my perception. And so if you sort of again have your ear to the ground listening to what's going on in the publishing industry, usually you end up coming, arriving at a book with some preconceived notion of whether it's quote unquote literary based on sort of what other people have said. That may be a, something one shouldn't listen to. I think probably it is something one shouldn't listen to. I, I would toss in that. It certainly, that distinction makes a big difference, I know, with a lot of assigning book editors around the country. I mean, it's, it's true there's a great reaction to cover art and, and the house, and you know, there's KGB fiction, really. If you do have the hammer and sickle on there, you figure there's, this is one more tale of the KGB fighting the, you know, the US, <laughs> and you sort of toss it. And there, there's a, there is this tendency to, to look more closely and to read the books from, say, Athenaeum or Farris Strauss or Knopf and not to, to read some of the ones that come with pictures of you know, women like Danielle Steele after 17 makeovers or so, and, and the, the cover is glistening, and there's a little fuzz on the side of the cover, too. <laughs> and and, and you, you get, you know, book editors get calls from editors and publishing houses who say, look, I know the book is called Hot Flashes, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, there's, there's a great deal of marketing and, and manipulation and outreach that takes place to kind of affect the judgment of assigning book editors on whether something is literary fiction or nonfiction. Well, I'm sure she deserves an answer, but I'm not prepared to go any further on this. <laughs> Somebody else in here. How about you? Who was described as being avant-garde? Everybody take a step back. I hope it was me. Yeah. I'm so, I couldn't hear the last part. Look Close at her enough. sweater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I couldn't hear the, the question exactly. Yeah, well, fine with me <laughs> in, in, in what I choose to do uh, and then well I'll answer um, maybe this will be an answer um, uh, I was never looking for a large I never I never expected a large audience and that was really okay um, this will sound really snooty but um, uh, my editor always said look you're writing for the four, the three or four smart people, okay, <laughs> who will get it, um, and that's okay. 
I do maximum sales of four. Huh? <laughs> no. um, well, the person in the audience who called someone on this panel avant-garde, please stand up, because I don't think yeah, I, I don't remember I, No, oh, okay. Oh, there's a question there. class that was in that interview and the, that was in that article in the Times? Um, been to an MFA program, and I think I should defer to someone who has. Well, I've been to one. Um, gee, I would say, um, I mean, I didn't go right away after college at all, and I would say that it doesn't, I mean, you're going to do both. It's inevitable. Um, nobody can be in, you know, graduate school or writer's columnist the rest of their lives. Um, I would recommend, you know, waiting first, but that's what I did, so... <laughs> You know, lots of other people did other things. I went to graduate school, I think, for the reason a lot of people did, which was um, I, I wanted time. I, like, I got a scholarship, and it was a way to have a little help um, to just get a little bit of time to, to write. I, I went to a school, a poor school, Columbia, so I didn't, I didn't have as much time as if I'd maybe gone somewhere else. But that's one good reason to go to graduate school. But um, I, I worked for, what, Two years before going to graduate school, um, and um, yes or no, yes or no. Um, it was valuable, but you know, it's it was uh, it's not so clear cut that I'd say you know definitely go. Sorry to be so vague, but it, it's sort of vague in my mind. Anyone want to talk about choices other than writing colonies or? Uh or writing programs? Well, writing colonies and writing programs are very different things. Mm -hmm. You know, writing colonies are places that you sort of go for a couple of months or for six weeks just to get away from, from distraction and, and get down to some serious work. Um, I suppose if I had any advice to offer, I would simply say, you know, writing isn't the sort of profession that you can just sort of leap right into out of college. Um, for the simple reason, unless you're sort of independently wealthy and you don't need to make a living because it usually takes a long time before you can make a living at it. Um, I went to work when I graduated from college because I had to. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was lucky enough that I only had, I worked half time, which gave me some time to write. Um, but, uh, you know, that, it seems to me these things aren't really so much choices. Writing is such a sort of organic part of living the idea is you just go ahead and do whatever you need to do and, and, and assume that the writing w will come after it. I do think Mona's right that it's probably a bad idea to go right from college into a writing program. Um, it's worth spending, a f but I would advise to anyone who is going to any kind of graduate school or law school or medical school to take a couple of years off between college and, and that next step just so that you can get a sense of a different kind of life, a life outside the academy. One great thing about writing is that you can't make a wrong career choice. I mean, you know, basically people use their failures to the greatest advantage, so, you know. <laughs>
I worked at the Paris Review a, a few years ago, and I mean, this happened a few years ago. I worked there a while ago, and we had a young writer we published who was very young in college, and she she came. We wanted to meet her, and, and she came and met us, and said she was graduating from Sarah Lawrence, and she was going to give herself six months following graduation to fail. Um, following that, she was going to start applying to law school if she had not made it as a writer. Um, <laughs> I would discourage this kind of an attitude. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, you have you know the rest of your life to fail if you're a writer. You there just you have you just have to assume initially that you better do something else. Yeah. And then once you start having some success as a writer, you can think about quitting. I think that that's, or you can think about graduate school <laughs> at that point. So I, I'm just curious what point there. Uh, do you all feel that once you achieve sort of the, the means to write full time, that that's what you'd like to do, as opposed to also having you know, a, a profession, uh, being an architect and a writer, or an engineer and a writer? I would say absolutely not, or what would you have to write about? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of obvious. Mm -hmm. Well, but none of us are architects or engineers, because mm -hmm. no, but well, either. it's still possible to apply. Yeah. That's <laughs> true. I, I don't, I actually disagree with you, Amy, which is funny, because um, I agreed with everything else you said, but <laughs> um, I, I don't think that it's that you. The only way to learn is by doing something. I, I'm, I'm writing full time for the first time, just in the last few months, and I've been just extremely grateful for it. I mean, I found that, you know, I'm able to sort of read the nonfiction books I've been wanting to read for years. I'm, I'm able to. I'm studying the language. I, I think that a lot of the things you can, a lot of the things you want to learn about about the world are not best learned by doing them, you know, if, if you want to learn them quickly. I mean. Well, I'm just I'm saying more that there are things I want to do that have nothing to do with writing that I think, in mm. fact, will make my writing better. Oh, Although yeah. that's not why I'm doing, or doing them or planning to do them. Part of the difference, too, is the form you write in. I mean, poets, for example, historically, many poets have not written full time, and it, it seems to work out for them. Probably the writers of, of long novels just, if only typographically, need more time. It's very hard It's very hard to write a novel when you have a full-time career. I have a friend who did it, and the way she did it was that she would go to bed every night at 9 and get up every morning at 5, and she would write from 5 until 8.30 and then go to work. That, well, for me, that's a total impossibility <laughs> um, for reasons having to do with my biological clock. But uh, even so, it seems to me that's sort of a shame that uh, for a writer to have to do that. Um, it is form. It is certainly certainly formulated, and there's certainly lots of writers who do have other careers and who manage, who uh, who manage to do both. Um, I guess uh, the question of sort of. I mean, I don't I don't know anyone who just sort of never worked and never had any other sort of a life. You know, it's that's pretty hard to do. Very hard, I would imagine. Question back there. Uh, the question was: Does everybody on the panel support just himself or herself by writing, including the moderator? The uh, moderator gets a union salary from his newspaper and does support himself by his writing. 
Yes. Uh, yes, at the moment. Though I could, men, most writers I know support themselves by teaching. Um, I, I guess I kind of do now, but it's, it's very recent. And I, I also have a, I guess I have a fellowship this year, so that doesn't really count. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not from sales. But. And uh, I've, I've supported myself in the last few years, maybe four years, by writing. Other, before that, I supported myself by supporting myself. But yeah. The, the thing to remember is that. We all had jobs for a long mm -hmm. time. Yeah. It's a very tenuous sort of supporting yourself because it's not as if you have a guaranteed salary every year. You can sort of maybe, like I can, I can foresee that I have the means to support myself for about two years. But if after two years things don't, I don't sort of continue to produce or 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 make money from what I'm writing, uh, the future is very open-ended. Um, and and uh, all I can say is that for the moment, I'm glad for, I'm grateful to have the next two years. I think Anybody? this is the wrong panel for that, har that, that, that horrifying question. Um, I think we should wait until we have, Penn has its tax law panel, which yes. I'm sure does it's going to have. Does, yeah. does any, uh, are, I was, has anybody been in, in the situation where having a particular job actually made a difference to your fictional project so that some work environment you turned up in seemed so powerful that you kind of dropped what you were doing and, and wrote about that? I wouldn't say I dropped what I was doing, but a work environment that I worked in w found its way into my fiction. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've had that happen too. Mm -hmm. Several, in fact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You had something more. Right. I didn't think I claimed that. Yeah, I don't know. I think that it's less. Well, you said it was published by Valentine, which is. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Because I was going to say I think it, there is a difference between the paper between things which are published originally and paperback. Okay, then that's that's not a, that's a moot uh, point. I think if you're going to yeah. give her a boyfriend, why why the hell not give her a job? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, give her a and leg up in give the world. Her a job, you know? Why not give her an Academy Award? God's sake. I, mean, um, I, I, I have a, a question which has never failed to get, get no response in interviews with authors, so I'll try it here too. Um, one thing that we had talked about um, in, in discussing this panel was whether, whether some of the writers actually do have kind of visions of their own place in um, 
the literary world or in the literary tradition. And I'm often curious if you had the opportunity, I don't know, the Oxford Guide to American Literature or the Cambridge Guide or some little encyclopedia and you knew that you, know, you, you can write the David Levitt squib or the Amy Hempel squib, um, young writer born, et cetera, and early work stood for, dot, dot, dot. I mean, do you have enough of a conception of either what you want to do as a writer or what you think you have done as a writer that you can give us an advanced look at what those squibs will look like in the future? No. <laughs> no, don't hit me with no, 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 I no. I really, no, I don't. Well, Colin, I mean, <laughs> is that, is, is, are we the people to whom that question is properly addressed? I mean, I, I mean, it doesn't seem to me that my role in literary history ought to be examined by me. I mean, it's sort of none of my business. Only on a panel, Deborah. <laughs> Only on a panel. No. I mean, I really do feel that it's really none of my business because, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. because I really do just, I, I really want to write about whatever it turns out that I'm able to write about in whatever way I'm able to, uh, you know, press into service. And I really, um, I think maybe, you know, on my deathbed, if I have the leisure maybe I'll sort of wonder about what my, <laughs> how I fit into literary history, but. Uh, I asked Saul Bellow that, and he said the first thing that he, he would do is ask for more space, which, <laughs> which I thought was very Saul Bellow. But, uh, um, no one else on that. Other questions? No, uh, oh, one in the back there. We're doing okay, we could go maybe 10 more minutes, 15 minutes, or what do you think? 10? 10. Okay. avant-garde wimping out. <laughs> I, well. think, I think writers do address those issues. I think um, some writers have written very overtly about um, the bomb and the aftermath. There's been, there's been actually several, many novels about sort of after, after the Holocaust kind of novels. I think probably everybody who doesn't write about the issue that directly um, might might look at it another way. I mean, I think people write about communities and about um, governances, and, and you know, I think I think ideology is not missing from contemporary literature. And you know, I could I could rattle off a, a dozen <laughs> books that I've come across ab about these things, but you know, they might not all be actually literally about the bomb, but they're probably about communities and how they organize themselves and perpetuate themselves, which is ultimately about government and about decision making. Well, I think I'll <laughs> it's funny, just today <laughs> I was reading um, 
Camus and, and, and his Nobel Prize speech, which said something like, um, the task of contemporary fiction, of course, this is a ways back, um, is no longer to write about those people who make history, but about those people to whom history happens. So that's the answer I would think. I need to take a last question or, or two. How about you? I did. What can I say? No, I haven't read it. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Well, I don't know. Actually, I don't know that. That I'd love to know what, why why you think that question falls into <laughs> this evening. Um, but I just actually, I mean, biz bizarrely, I just came from interviewing Bob Woodward, so it's uh, um, Do I think it happened? Yes. Huh. Huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think it's fiction, if that's your question. I think he was in the room. <laughs> yeah. I want to say one more thing about the, the, the nuclear bombs question, which is just that, um, in a sense, even if you don't write explicitly, Anyone living in America in the 80s has that sort of somewhere in their consciousness. Um, and I think it's sort of it's sort of somewhere in there, and 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 that some smart young literary critic, looking at, at fiction written in the 1980s, is going to be able to extract it from very unlikely places and say, here we see a peculiarly uh, a peculiar and subtle and buried reference to uh, to fear of the bombs going off. But I just wanted to say, in general, I think it's a dangerous thing to prescribe what, it's, what is correct or important for writers to write about. Writers have to have the freedom to write about what, th what they want. Otherwise, there'll be, you, know, you won't have the sort of great surprises of discovering importance in the least, in the least imaginable places, in places where you would never expect to find it. Uh, you know, Grace Paley, who is among our most political people, when asked in an interview, um, why her writing wasn't more explicitly political said that she thought the most politically correct, I suppose, and again I'm paraphrasing, thing that a writer could do was just to tell the truth. Mm. Good well, Among contemporary writers, or, or Well, all I can. Oh, was mm -hmm. Well, I really don't know. I mean, I would say that. I mean, I I've loved reading fiction until I began to write it myself. At which point, I stopped reading it. Um, but I wouldn't know how to begin to assess what I've learned or who I've learned it 
from because, um, well, we've just heard from Grace Paley on another subject, but the word that she uses of truthfulness is, is the word which sort of means something to me in this context as well as all others which have to do with writing. Uh, and it seems to me that the thing that you can learn from a good writer is that it's, it is possible to write truthfully about the world. It really is possible, no matter how peculiar it seems or how difficult it seems. I mean, how peculiar each uh, instance of it seems. And any good writer has that quality of truthfulness, uh, really to a degree that's almost pure. And it just seems to me that there's, you know, there's a world full of good writers. I mean, America, there have just been so many good writers. And uh, that's the thing you learn over and over from, from any good writer. And it gives you, I mean, you learn that, it's, that you must be, you ought to be courageous to try to write truthfully yourself. And as, for, as far as the second part of your question, um, I have absolutely zero to say about it. Uh, mm -hmm. I w well, I can tell you who I would like to be <laughs> when I grow up. I mean, there are certain, it's true that there are certain, I've found there are certain writers who the, f the first time I read those writers, I wanted to, that was when I knew I wanted to be a writer, or that was when I knew that I wanted to go and sit down and write. And when I say who I want to be when I grow up, the writers who, who I've sort of I idolized, in a sense, as, as the, the, the masters, or at least the contemporary masters. And, and for me, and people always find this surprising because she's not a writer who's really that well known, but for me, the ultimate master is Alice Munro. Yes, oh, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> 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 Alice Monroe is really it, <laughs> and 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 Grace Paley is right up there too. I think Mona mentioned a, sto a particular story. Didn't you say mention the story? I stand here ironing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'd say it's well. I can. I can point to writers who I go back to and read over and over again, but it's more a matter of, of individual stories. And that story Mona mentioned, I Stand Here Ironing by Tilly Olson. Um, I couldn't tell, I, mean, I can't count how many times I've read it, and it, it always does it. It's probably the first story I read that got things going. Um, also, there's a poem, a very, very short poem called Hunger by Jack Gilbert. The thing I have over my, everyone has something over their typewriter. I still use a typewriter. And, um, uh, and, met, and more, more currently, I mean, more recently than um, Grace Paley and Tilly Olson. Mary Robeson. I agree with David. I, owe, I personally owe her an enormous debt. If there's one story, I would say it would be Friends by Grace Paley. That mm, is the story I read over and over and over again. And then maybe a close second uh, would be um, The Progress of Love by Alice Munro. Yes. Oh, unbelievable story. Beautiful story. Um, I like William Maxwell a lot, too. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, and Robert Stone. Mm -hmm. Though I, I don't think I've heard, you know, I don't write the way he does at all, but I, I think he's great mm -hmm. too. Well, I can assure you that this panel will not be published by Knopf and there will be no <laughs> written record. Um, the, so why don't we take one last question? Uh, unless the Swedish Academy is lying, the Nobel Prize for Literature is being announced tomorrow morning since there are <laughs> undoubtedly many candidates here who want a good night's sleep before the phone call. <laughs> we, we should get out in time, so we'll make this the last one. Paris Review question, you're getting it. <laughs> if you couldn't hear that question in the back, it, it, it's the do you use a word processor or a typewriter, how do you write, and uh, how much do finances play a role in, in your writing? Well, I, use, I write on an Apple Macintosh. And um, I wouldn't say finances play that much of a role because uh, computers aren't that expensive anymore. It's like $2,000 and it's tax deductible, so. I don't go into the tax questions. Wait. Right, don't yeah. go into the tax questions. Anybody? Microsoft Word. Uh, let's get some software let's questions. Let's get really specific here. Yeah. Let's get serious here. Anybody? I own one of those too, um, but I actually I write um, just with ink, you know, on paper. But then I type it eventually into the Apple Macintosh, which breaks though a lot. Oh really? Mine has broken. <laughs> <laughs> I write longhand, and uh, except for the last fifteen or twenty drafts, which I type. <laughs> <laughs> No, no quills or crayons. Um, well, wh what have we determined here? That all of these people do not form a school. Is that fair? They are not going back to the same apartment as far as I know.